You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information As I mentioned before, my wife and I went to Paris last summer. We took our niece there as a graduation gift. And when we got there, we needed transportation to the Airbnb that we had rented just outside the city. Of course, we didn't know how to get there by train yet, so our only options were either a taxi cab or an Uber. Now, I did check the Uber app, but I was surprised to find out that the taxi cab was slightly cheaper. It was about a 40-minute ride from the airport, so I have to tell you, we weren't shocked by the high fare to get us there. But what if one wanted to travel a much farther distance? I mean, a really long distance. Well, a taxi cab wouldn't make much sense. You know, a train, an airplane, a bus, that would be far cheaper and probably much faster. Well, the story I have for you today is a situation just like this. A woman who wanted to go a really long distance in a taxi cab. So let's hop in on DeLorean and take a trip back in time to April 21st of 1966. Our destination is the dispatch center for the Black and White Cab Company in Toledo, Ohio. There, an unnamed woman calls in and requests a taxi to take her from Toledo all the way out to San Francisco, California. Since I know that a lot of my listeners don't reside with the United States, I'll tell you this, that is a really long distance. Now, depending on the path you take to get there, it's roughly a distance of 2,400 miles or 3,860 kilometers. Now, the cab company did their own estimate, and they came up with 2,428 miles. Now, the cab company clearly had both the drivers and the cars needed to make such a trip, but you have to ask yourself, Who in their right mind would want to pay for a taxi to travel such a long distance? Well, they figured 50 cents per mile, and they quoted her a flat fee price of $1,250. Adjusting for inflation, that's $9,800 today, or just under $10,000. Holy cow. In comparison... It was reported that a first-class airplane ticket at the time would cost $141.12, or you could take a two-day train ride on a sleeper car, and that would run you $130.49. Think about it. $130 to $140, 
versus $1,250. That's an incredibly big difference. Even though the quoted price was outrageous, the woman was insistent on having a taxicab take her to the West Coast. In addition, she had one other request. She wanted the cab to be driven by 43-year-old Paul Mertz, and that's because he had driven her to Detroit and Chicago over the previous week. Apparently, Mertz had gained her trust, but even he was shocked by her request to drive her to San Francisco. He stated, quote, I couldn't believe my ears. In what would be Black and White Cab's longest trip ever, at least up until that point, they required the woman to pay for all other incidental costs that included meals and lodging. And to avoid fatigue, fellow Toledo driver, that's 39-year-old Chester Renault, he was asked to accompany Mert so that the two of them could take turns driving across the country. The terms were agreed to and the woman proceeded to write a check for $850 as a down payment. The remainder would be due upon their arrival in California. Melvin Farrell, he was a dispatcher for the cab company at the time. Well, he told the press, quote, The person just wanted to rent a cab to go. She had the money and so she went. So at 9.30 p.m. on that same day, that's April 21st, 1966, the three of them just took off in that taxi cab. Their first stop was about four hours later at the woman's home in Munster, Indiana. It was there that she picked up her luggage, and they claim it was enough to fill the entire trunk. And if you've seen these old cabs, it had a really big trunk. Anyway, she also got her pet Chihuahua. His name was Tiny Mouse he would ride with her in the back seat for the entire trip. Now, the woman expressed a fear of heights, so the drivers opted to drive along Route 66 through the southwestern United States. In this way, they avoided the more direct route through the Rocky Mountains. As a whole, it was a fairly uneventful trip. For most of the ride, the woman simply slept in the back seat as the two drivers continued to push westward. But when she was awake, the three sang songs together, and they were mostly church hymns. And the driver who wasn't driving, you know, the one who was in the passenger seat, he was asked to read aloud passages from the Bible. Along the way, three motel stops were made. The first was in Joplin, Missouri, the second in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and lastly, just after crossing into California, they stopped in Needles. And this was so that passengers could get some needed rest, but really she didn't sleep very long and requested that they get right back on the road. There was one other brief stop made in Vega, Texas, and that was so a doctor could treat the mystery woman for a minor illness. By this time, the wire services had spread the story to newspapers nationwide. Just who was this unidentified woman? Where in San Francisco was she headed? And why did she choose such a slow, expensive method to cross the country? While readers pondered over this bizarre mystery, the cab continued along its journey to California. One of those readers was a real estate agent named George Cariotis. He resided at 636 35th Street in Richmond, California. 
Now, for those who are not familiar with it, Richmond is about 13 miles or 21 kilometers northeast of San Francisco as the crow flies. Now, imagine his surprise as the black and white taxi cab that he had been reading about in the newspaper stopped right in front of his door at 6.55 a.m. on Monday, April 25th of 1966. Now, the press reported that the entire trip took about 80 hours, but my calculation came up with a little under 85 hours, or three days and 13 hours to get there. Cariotis immediately recognized the woman who stepped out of the cab, but he wouldn't reveal anything specific about her to the press. He respected her privacy. All he would say was that she was in her mid-50s, she was the spouse of his wife's uncle, she had visited the Cariotis home two years prior, and that she was involved in a legal battle with her husband's family. Now, Cariotis did state, quote, she is exhausted and sleeping. She's a very charming woman. Cab driver Mertz commented, quote, The trip in the cab with Ohio plates created considerable excitement, especially in the small towns. People looked at us as if we were nuts. He continued, And cops and highway patrolmen kept stopping us, asking to see our papers. When they found them in order, they said, Okay, you can go and good luck. And with that, the remainder of the fare was paid, and the two drivers began their long trek back to Toledo. Respecting their passengers' privacy, they continued to remain silent as to her identity. Their silence didn't really matter, because by the end of the day of her arrival, the San Francisco Examiner revealed that one of the drivers had registered their passenger at one of those motels along the way, as Mrs. Mary Matz of Hammond, Indiana. And with her identity now revealed, 48-year-old Mrs. Matz agreed to an interview with the press. It turns out that she was the fourth wife of 85-year-old Henry W. Matz, a retired Chicago funeral home director who was in poor health. Now, according to Henry's son Clarence, the couple had separated five or six weeks prior. The elder Matz had recently been hospitalized, but he had since been released and was staying with his son in Chicago. And after Mrs. Matz had a huge falling out with her husband's family, she headed out west to the Cariotis home. She said that was because they were, quote, the only relatives who had been nice to me. When questioned as to why she didn't travel via train or airplane, she said that it was for, quote, health reasons. Mrs. Matz explained that she feared becoming ill along the route and a taxi could stop at any point along the way while a plane or train could not. When asked as to when she'd be returning home, she really couldn't answer that question. She indicated that she was under medical care and, you know, she wouldn't leave until a doctor gave her the okay. After a few days in the spotlight, Mrs. Matz would disappear from the headlines totally. Now, according to her husband's death certificate, she was still married to him when he passed away on June 16th of 1969. Unfortunately, I was unable to find out what happened to Mary Matz afterwards. So if anybody knows, please let me know. I'd love to update my listeners. Useless, useful, 
I'll leave that for you to decide. All hands on deck. Here's Popeye. Popeye's favorite cereal because it makes muscle. And it looks like the girls all want to grow up in a hurry and be young ladies. So they eat Wheatina too. Because Wheatina's regular growing food. And my, the roses it puts into their cheeks. Yes, sir. And mmm, boy, how good it tastes. Well, any other boys and girls want muscle or want to go fast? Okay. Tell Mother you want that delicious Wheatina tomorrow. That 1936 commercial for Wheatina is from the Popeye and Gang at the Zoo episode of Popeye the Sailor. It was a 15-minute kid show that was broadcast three times per week at 7.15 p.m. Cartoonist Elsie Chrysler Seeger introduced Popeye on January 17, 1929, in the comic strip Thimble Theater. That comic strip was in its 10th year of production at that time. Up until that point, the strip's main characters were olive oil, castor oil, and Harold Ham Gravy, which was later shortened to simply Ham Gravy. Popeye was introduced when Castor Oil, that's Olive Oil's older brother, was in need of a mariner to navigate his ship. So he found a guy named Popeye on the docks, and of course the rest is history. Popeye proved to be so popular that the strip was eventually renamed after him. Now if you're curious, Popeye's first line in that 1929 strip was, Do you think I'm a cowboy? Sadly, the strip's creator, Seeger, died of leukemia on October 13, 1938, at 43 years of age. That's quite young. In my mind, Popeye is famous for eating just one thing, and you know what it is, spinach. Even these old radio commercials, of which less than 10% of those original shows still exist, Popeye got his energy from not spinach, but as you just heard, Wheatina instead. The makers of Wittina paid King Features Syndicate, that's the branch of William Randolph Hearst's empire, you know, that distributed his company's works to other newspapers. Wittina paid King Features Syndicate $1,200 per week to sponsor the show. That'd be about $22,000 per week today. As for Wittina, it's a high-fiber toasted wheat cereal that was introduced around 1879 by George H. Hoyt. He operated a small bakery on Mulberry Street in New York City. 
At a time when cereals were sold in bulk from large barrels, Hoyt instead chose to package his cereal. That offered a more sanitary approach to consumers. An 1879 advertisement read, in part, quote, We Tina, their new food preparation, which is unequaled as a life-sustaining, health-giving food. Well, clearly there's a bit of an exaggeration there, but it was a start. Wittina was sold six years later to Dr. Frank Fuller, a doctor who focused on proper nutrition. He had a very original name for his health company. He called it the Health Food Company. Anyway, the company was sold once again in 1903 and renamed the Wheatina Company. By the 1920s, the company was selling millions of boxes each year. Well, over the years, Wheatina changed hands several times, and today it is manufactured by Homestead Farm Limited in Dublin, Ohio. So here's a question for you. Actress Betty White, who has had the longest television career of any entertainer, that's 80 years because she first appeared on TV in 1939. Well, Betty has had a show named after her more than once. So my question for you is how many different shows, whether it be on radio or TV, were named The Betty White Show? Well, hang around for a bit and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. In other news, here are three stories from the past that all have to do with the world of fashion. A New York Times article from August 4, 1920, describes how Great Britain was importing a large quantity of men's suits from Germany simply because they were much lower in cost to purchase. All of these suits were fashioned in the latest English styles of the day, so no one was losing out on style there. An entire suit could be purchased for between 46 cents and $1.95 each. That'd be between $6 and $25 today, which according to the article meant that a man could buy a German suit every week for an entire year, and the total cost would be less than one British-made woolen suit. Somehow I think that's a bit of an exaggeration, but it's still cheap. There was one big catch, however. The low-cost suits were made of paper. (laughs) Next up, it was reported on August 13, 1949, that engineer-turned-fashion designer Charles Langs was having a problem meeting demand for his new product that he named the Posies. 
The idea for his invention came while he's on vacation in Florida with his wife Mary and their four children. You see, Mary liked to slip off the straps of her bathing suit while she was suntanning, but that made it difficult to sit up and care for her children while holding her top up at the same time. So he came up with a design that consisted of two cloth cups with ruffles that have adhesive around the edges. You simply stick them on and, you know, let the sun do the rest. Today they're referred to as pasties, I believe. When he first launched the posies, he anticipated selling, you know, just a few dozen here or there. Yet it wasn't long before sales topped 500,000 units each week. So to meet this sudden demand, he contracted with two companies to produce the product, and he hired 45 women to ship the orders. Langs insisted that he wanted nothing more than to return to his engineering job, and he was willing to sell the business to a reputable firm. His plea was noticed by the Textron company, and they purchased his business and patents for $750,000 in September of 1949. That'd be about $8 million today. Lastly, an October 9, 1959 article discusses how a city ordinance in Mobile, Alabama had been proposed by three city commissioners, all of the male, to ban shoes with heels more than one and a half inches or 3.8 centimeters in height and less than one inch or 2.54 centimeters in diameter. The reason for this law was concern over a spiked heel getting caught in the joints of the sidewalks and in the drainage gratings. Of course, this would cause injury and then a lawsuit against the city. Apparently, about 50 damage suits had already been filed by women who had fallen on city streets over the prior two years. The fine for violating the law was $5, which is about $43 today, but there was a way around the ordinance. All one had to do was apply for a free permit. That allowed the women to wear spiked shoes in exchange for agreeing not to sue the city. After the law was adopted on October 13, 1959, Mrs. Betty McNutt became the first to obtain the high heel permit. So a few minutes ago, I asked you how many different shows were named The Betty White Show. Now, while I'll always remember her for her roles on the Mary Tyler Moore Show and the Golden Girls, none of those bore her name. The first show called The Betty White Show ran on radio in the 1940s. That was followed by another show of the same name, which is a daily daytime talk show in 1954 on NBC. Then, in 1958, she was the host of a primetime comedy variety show of that same exact name, on ABC. And finally, there was a CBS sitcom of that name that ran from September 12, 1977 to January 9, 1978. That's a total of four different shows titled The Betty White Show. Maybe she renamed this show The Betty White Show. That would bring her count to five. Oh wait, she's not on the show, is she? Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I do hope you enjoyed the story about the mysterious taxi ride across the United States. It's one that's been floating around my desk for years, and I'm not exaggerating that. 
so I decided to finally complete the research on it and uh, write it. I know it's not the longest story I've ever written, but it really was a fun one to do. Now, if you've been following the progress on my new book, I figured I'd give you a brief update. I've been writing nearly every single day since July 1st, and I have about 32,000 words written. I figure that each story takes me about two days to write, although one of them, and this is the last one I wrote, and it's perhaps the craziest story in the book, it took me an entire week to make it into a readable story. If you'd like to receive occasional updates as to when the book is available, and so far I've sent no updates to anybody, you can just go to my website at uselessinformation.org and click on the image of the book on the left. That will take you to a Google form where you can enter your contact information. Be sure to sign up for my Twitter feed, that's at uselessinfocast, and that'll allow you to be among the first to know when a new podcast is released. Again, the handle is at uselessinfocast. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook. All you have to do is a quick search for Useless Information Podcast there, and it should pop up. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Just want to give a quick reminder that the Useless Information Podcast is part of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Be sure to go to recordedhistory.net to learn about all of the quality history podcasts that the network has to offer. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.